Are you haunted by the thought that random people you pass on the street might have no idea that you're a fan of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy? Well, it's time to fix that by ordering a Geek's Guide to the Galaxy t-shirt over at geeksguide.threadless.com. And I want to thank Muriel Ingracia, Anders Kilstedt, Tyler Lutz, and Chrissy Lutz for being among the first to order their very own Geek's Guide to the Galaxy t-shirts. See a photo of Tyler and Chrissy looking gorgeous in their snazzy red Geek's Guide to the Galaxy t-shirts over at geeksguideshow.com. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 403 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Gwyneth Jones. She's the author of many books, including the Bold as Love series of rock and roll fantasy novels and the Illusion series of far future science fiction novels. Her literary criticism has been collected in books such as Deconstructing the Starships, Science, Fiction, and Reality, and she's also written 20 young adult books under the name Anne Hallam, and we'll be speaking with her today about her new short story collection, Big Cat and Other Stories, and about her new nonfiction book, Joanna Russ, which explores the life and work of science fiction's most outspoken feminist writer. And now here's our interview with Gwyneth Jones. All right, so we're here with Gwyneth Jones. Welcome to the show. Hi. I'm in Brighton. <laughs> okay, so your new short story collection is called Big Cat and Other Stories. So how this book come yes. about? Um, I just had some short stories, and I asked Ian Waits, who has a, a small press, if he'd like to bring out um, a, a collection, a reasonable-sized collection. So I thought I would go with it, and he said, yeah, let's do it. That's how it came about. So how fairly you, random, really. How do you know Ian Waits? Um, science fiction. Uh, I went to a con which he was, uh, he was certainly organizing it in uh, Northampton, I think. Yes. And uh, we remained friends from then on, and I, I've talked to him quite a lot, and it seemed like the right person to approach. And so these are stories, it looks like the earliest was 2007 through 2019? Yes, but that's a bit um, deceptive because the first one, the big cat, has been around for a long time. As I said in the, um, as I say in the note in the book, uh, it really is the story uh, that I derived from a dream, and um, I don't dream about my dream worlds, my fiction at all. But on this occasion, I did. And then I had several attempts to try and make the fragments of this dream into a story. And Big Cat is the uh, is the last, I think, attempt I'm going to make. So I hope it worked better. So, so what happened others. in the dream? Ah, uh, now, mostly I can't tell you. Um, I know what I remembered, and it was these two characters from the Boulder's Love scenario. And one of them is Cornish, and one of them, uh, he's uh, Steve Pender, known as Aoxamoxoa, and also Sage. And the other one is a, a rock and roll brat called Fiorinda, and she's um, rock royalty, but in a very unpleasant connection. And um, they have become involved in a revolution in England. And now I'm telling you stuff that didn't happen in the dream. This is just that the two characters were in my mind and they were as they are in this book in my dream. But in my dream, 
It was just a dream of them going to Cornwall and being, um, they had something to do there. At first it wasn't clear. Uh, they were driving across the moor. It was very cold. It was very dark. It was kind of spooky. And they were taking a child to a party. Um, and then there was something about a big cat and uh, the big cat had attacked maybe a farmhouse and got shot. And, or maybe the a cat had not got shot. Maybe a wolf had got shot or this was unclear. And this interrupted the birthday party journey. And then there was something about trees, trees walking, uh, green and fir trees. They're not fir trees in the actual story, but they were big green conifers and they were walking sort of through the ground, like in, um, I don't know if you know the Narnia books. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, well, they were like uh, C.S. Lewis imagines trees walking, not kind of lifting their roots out and plodding them down, just kind of going through the soil. And uh, that's basically it. And from that, I constructed the story uh, because the dream, it was so delightful to have a dream about my fictional characters that I had to do something with it. Right, so that was the big cat is one of the stories in this book, and then there's uh, yeah. I think ten other stories. Yeah, and, and uh, it, it's a mixed bag. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say they cover all sorts of uh, genres and everything. Um, I think the majority of them, or no, uh, um, five of five of the eleven were written for Jonathan Strawn anthologies. They sort of um, were science fiction anthologies. Yeah. Do you think? Um, do you uh, do you know him well, or do you do you think there's a uh, that his anthologies are a particularly good fit for your uh, stories or anything like that? All I know of him, really, is that he um, likes my stories, which is, I think that's pretty good. <laughs> um, and I think his anthologies, I mean, I read the anthologies when they've got my one of my stories in them, of course. And he seems, of course, I think he's got good taste. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that they are, um, they have been uh, a great institution, yes, for people like me, certainly. Yeah, well, I think all these stories, except maybe Big Cat, were written at, at the request of an editor. Is that right? Um, I don't know if you'd count the um, Stella and the Adventurous Roots, because that one was um, a project that 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 I was invited to join, but in, in fact they threw me out. <laughs> but it was you were invited. Yeah. You you wouldn't have written the story without the invitation, or or would you? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I usually have, what can I say, proto-stories that are, um, are kind of um, in my mind and I'm thinking, am I going to write this or not? And then somebody will um, will ask me to write a story for an anthology and I'll think, oh yeah, that, this one will do. I, I've just written one um, called The Plowshare and the Storm for a uh, Michael Moorcock um inspired anthology and um i've been thinking about that story and the what happens is that you have an idea and then an invitation gives the impetus to um, make that a idea into a story to figure it out and write it so what do you have to do to get thrown out of an anthology <laughs> well um it was supposed to be a collection of botanical based science fiction or fantasy stories and it was i think 
I think it's fair to say was commissioned by these people called Wayward Plants. And they were going to get this anthology written by science fiction and fantasy writers. And they would match up this. I think the idea was they would match up the science fiction and fantasy writers to illustrators. So they would get this book of stories with, with fantastical plants. Um, and so I wrote Stella and the Adventurous Roots, but the idea of a, a, a botanical kind of business that called itself Wayward Plants was kind of deceptive. Um, what my, you've read the story Stella and the Adventurous Roots? I, I read the whole book, yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, they, they didn't like the gorilla gardeners. The gorilla gardeners were too, uh, um, unconventional and probably the police should send them away from wherever they get up to whatever they get up to uh, so that was a problem and also there was a strand um uh if you've read the story you'll know there is a rather disturbing strand and they didn't like that being i suppose i should call it a tendril not a strand since it's a botanical story <laughs> but anyway they didn't like that tendril at all and so they threw me out <laughs> And we should make clear for listeners that we're talking about gorilla gardeners, like gorilla fighters, not like yeah. gorillas in the mist. Uh-huh. Yeah, and yeah, no, 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 no great apes were involved <laughs> in any way. Um, but there are some unpleasant. There is there is an unpleasant tendril in in the story, or root, or stem, and that they didn't like either. I'm surprised though that they had a problem with the gorilla gardeners part. I mm. mean, these are just people who um they sort of move in in the story. They move into um uh uh, uh real estate that's not being used and sort of set up an impromptu garden. Yes, and they have no um they have no intention of taking over. They are just using derelict space, and they will leave as soon as the as soon as the developers come back, or or, or whatever it is that's supposed to happen to the space starts happening. And they're also doing things which is which is it was actually I mean this happens all the time uh, in Brighton um, when I was uh, working on the story. There were people um, I suppose there were guerrilla gardeners just. Um, um, planting flowers in, 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 uh, in empty lots. And, um, I think it happens in London too. Maybe it happens all over, but it, it, it seems pretty harmless to me. And, um, they weren't going to stand and fight when the developers came back, not by any means. So it was nothing criminal. Did you ever think about becoming a gorilla gardener yourself? Mm, my hands get so cold. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I do a little bit of ordinary gardening, but I, you know I just went, went would I just appreciate what they do. I I never actually got involved. I'm, I don't think I have green fingers. I mean, you seem but to I did be. En- Sorry, I was going to say I did enjoy writing Stella and the Adventurous Roots, though it's great. I mean, you seem, you, you do seem to be very interested in nature and um, Green Party activism and stuff like that. Not compared to most, not compared to the real people. <laughs> I'm a, a, a dilettante. Is that the way you say it? Anyway, I just make the noises. Um, I am not really much of a, a demonstrator or a, a manning the barricades sort of green activist. Although I did do quite a lot of work at our last general election in this country, in the rain and the dark, knocking on doors. Hi. I'm from the Green Party. 
Ah, <laughs> oh, that was another lot. That was a lost cause from the start, but you have to try. So, how do people react when you knock on their door and say you're from the Green Party? It depends whether they like the Green Party <laughs> or not. Um, the people in Brighton Pavilion, which is my constituency, um, they're all pretty. They're, it'd be strange if they weren't aware that they're probably going to get a Green MP, because Caroline Lucas, my MP, is the only Green MP so far. And she always gets, well, so far, she's always got a, a, a strong majority in her constituency. So if they're right wing and, and hey, I'm from the Green Party, they just say, hmm, and shut the door. <laughs> and sometimes I've been tempted to say, look, uh, you know, they say I'm not voting. And I've been tempted to say, well, you know, you should vote because I'm a very public spirited political activist, because the vote still gets counted, you know, for your party, <laughs> which it does. I mean, it doesn't It doesn't have any significance because we don't have proportional representation, but it does get counted. But they, no, no, they're not going to vote. So, oh, fine, okay. And then if, if they are going to vote, sometimes, um, in fact, quite often, they're going to vote green. So it's not too painful. Yeah, so that's the story Stella and the Adventurous Route. Yeah. And, yeah, so I mentioned that a, a bunch of these stories are sort of more, you know, far future um, science fiction. And a lot of these stories you say are, um, there's this idea of information space, you say, comes up in your fiction a lot. So could you just lay yeah. out uh, what that idea is? Ah, if I had another handful of letters after my name, <laughs> maybe I could start a little bit. Um, I think I've, uh, recommended in Big Cat a book you should start with. Well, I won't start rustling pages now, but it's in there in the, in yeah, the no, Big I have, Cat it's, story. it's called uh, yeah. Life Without Jeans by Adrian Wilson. Yeah. yeah. I read that when I was writing the first or the second Boulder's Love books, when I was trying to work out my, um, uh, the um, magical science in Castles Made of Sand. And I was really thrilled because it really worked for me. Um, but now you're going to ask me to explain it. And it's simply, I, as, as far as I can actually explain it, uh, instead of thinking in terms of atoms or subatomic particles or sub-subatomic particles or things even littler than that, you think of everything, the whole um, stuff, as information, like the noughts and ones of data in some kind of way. And that means that you can have, um, I mean, if, if it's information, then um, a rose and love and the words I'm speaking to you are all made out of the same stuff. And that has interesting implications for, um, well, for people who are writing science fiction. I, it is a real thing, the, the the idea of information space science, but whether I understand it or not, oh, no, I just use it. <laughs> well, but I think one of the implications, right, is that if uh, everything is basically information at some low level of abstraction, then it's um, should be technologically possible to transfer things between thought to matter um, yes. and things like that pretty in a sort of straightforward way. Yes, and what's the other word we have for that behavior, that uh, that operation? It's magic. Hmm. 
<laughs> so uh, there you get the you get an interface between magic and science, which is in Boulder's Love, which I, I found very interesting and fun to play with. Um, uh, but um, this is not to say that I imagine that I will. See, I mean, I, there are some things I imagine that I might see develop, but that as things stand, that's not one of them. No, no, I think it's fantasy. Well, right. So in the books, you have um, a, a faster than light technology called the Buonarotti transit. That's sort of yeah. an extrapolation of this idea. Uh, it's this. It's got the same roots. Um, oh dear! You now you're going to ask me to explain the Buonarotti transit. Um, when you, uh, the, if you know where exactly you want to go, you can go there. It takes a lot of power, but you can will yourself there. And strange things happen to you on the way, which is, when I say on the way, there is no duration in a Bonarachi transit, but there's an imaginary uh, duration. And then when you get there, you just um, arrive as yourself. And you may or may not remember the strange things that sort of, that seem to happen, the dream that seemed to happen on the way. Well, right. And sort of two of the ideas that I really liked kind of related to this in the book are um, one, there's one character who who travels from planet to planet and he has his house with all his belongings, everything all laid out how he likes it, transmitted after him. And then when the data arrives, they reconstruct his house exactly the way he likes it, wherever he is. Um, so you, you just kind of never have to leave home in that way. Yes, yes. Uh, I I'm not, uh, that's Boaz, isn't it? And he he's still waiting for his house to arrive when we yeah. when we leave him actually. But it's yeah, it like lose his luggage. Yes, of. yes, they lost his luggage. But everything travels as data and gets reconstructed, including you you know people's minds when they arrive. Um, but things do get messed up, and occasionally things get messed up very badly, like as it happened has happened to um, the woman in Isabel Jewell in the story. Yeah, you know, exactly. And then yeah. the, the other thing I wanted to mention is in the story Cheats, you have these characters who play all these virtual reality games and are constantly bouncing between these different virtual game worlds. And then they actually inadvertently go through one of these sort of transfer things and end up in on another planet in physical reality and don't realize that that's happened. They think they're still in a game world. Uh, I thought that was a really sort of eerie, uh, eerie idea. Yes. They don't realize that they could die at any moment. Yes. Well, one of them is safe because she's on life support. But her brother isn't safe because he's healthy and he's just you know, got some kind of headset on back, on back on Earth sitting in a chair or something, and he could die. That's that's the, um, um, well, I again, a word I can't say. An anaphylactic shock kills you if you, if you, if you realise what's happened to you and you just, you just can't, you just can't count, you're dead. That's, but um, that's, Ah, I don't think that these things are exactly um, all the same technology. I think it's all the same um, field of ideas. I don't think that the what happens in Cheats is the same as what happens in the Illusion Trilogy or as what happens in the Boulder's Love books. I don't think you can join them up and make it a technology that's coherent through the whole kind of Gwyneth Jones universe. But um, I don't mind that. I mean, one of the things I think, I, I think I really do think, is that the idea that everything joins up and fits together and is um, um, seamlessly connected, 
I don't think that's true. I think that that things are as things in the universe are just as messy as they are in our minds. I also want to mention I really like some of the ideas in this story, Emergence. It's kind of about artificial intelligence. And um one thing I really liked was um that this, these AIs, if they commit a crime, they get punished by having to be put into a, a physical body, sort of a human body, and, and this is just a real drag for an AI. Well, I don't think, no, they don't get put into a human body. They get brought into human time. So, and for a, a, a data entity to be pinned down somewhere for what they call meat time is just appalling. It's like several life sentences. Uh, it's horrific to be confined that way, but um, it's not being human that they object to. It's the appalling waste of an empty time that, that is what human time appears appears to them. Okay, so a meat week is just time spending time at human uh, timescales. Yes. Okay. Yes, doing nothing, not 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 doing anything. Still a cool idea. I like that idea too. I mean, um, cause the, that's actually ties into the other thing I wanted to mention with the AI that I really liked is one of the characters, um, on Earth says, don't you, to, to the, to the protagonist who's traveled all over the solar system says to her, uh, don't you worry about the AIs, um, rising up, you know, having a revolution. And and she says, you know, you're thinking like a human. That's not how AIs think because their sense of time is so much different from ours. And, yeah. you know, like we're not even going to be around that long from their point of view. So it's not even worth it to them to overthrow us because, you know, they, they, they're they just thinking on such different time scales. Yes, I believe that at that time, at that moment, Romy is looking at the little dog in the hearth and she's saying to her, uh, the questioner, you have no idea. And she says that they are very sad because we're not immortal. And the, the, the idea that you can die, that you will die, I mean, it's just like having um, a pet that only lives for three or four years, a human, having a human being around, because you know that in the end, no matter how many times, how many iterations of this person you can manage, you're going to get to the end of it. And it, the story with Romy is how she um, she's run out of um, her capacity for rejuvenating her tissues, she gets the death, the death sentence. And only one answer when you've got the death sentence. And she finds out what it is. And it's quite amazing. So then I also wanted to ask you about the Joanna Russ book. So could you just uh-huh. tell us about how that came about? Um, I, um, I was approached by uh, an editor the um, Masters in Science Fiction Studies uh, at the University of Illinois Press and she asked me would I consider doing one of these pieces and I, she had, she had a, a handful of writers who were kind of in the pipeline to be, to, be, um, to be given the treatment and I said the only one that I really felt competent to, to write about would be Joanna Russ and she said you've got it so that's, where, that's the way it started. And, um, wow, that was five years ago, pretty much. Yeah, it took a long time to get that book out. So why did you feel that you would be a good match for the Joanna Russ project? Um, Because uh, I wasn't around for her 
the 60s and 70s, but I was there in the 80s and I was um, involved in the um, uh, the Tiptree Award judging because because um, a book of mine got kind of, uh, well, the, the first Tiptree Award. You know what the Tiptree Award is? I guess you do. Yeah, but maybe yeah. You, we could explain for listeners that it's uh, okay. an award in science fiction that um, is about uh, exploring gender roles and gender in, yes. in science fiction. Yes, yes, it was about exploring and expanding gender roles. And luckily, uh, well, they didn't work out until it was too late that my only interest in exploring and expanding binary gender roles was so I could track them down and burn out the nests. <laughs> but, <laughs> but luckily, they didn't spot that until they read the book and decided to give it half the prize, I suppose. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so I spent time with these, with people who were involved in the, um, uh, the seventies, the feminist seventies. And I met some, some of the, I met quite a, a few of the writers who were involved with, uh, Joanna Russ. I never met Joanna Russ. Uh, and I, I had been in part of the, uh, part of the conversation, quite interested in it. And that was made what made me feel that I probably could write about her. And I'd also written already written the introduction for the um the Galance Masterworks um edition of The Female Man. So I had some I had at least one book that I had studied quite um in quite a lot of detail. So I, I I'll do it. And then I yeah, and then I started working on it and my there was a lot of work. It's not like um writing a biography it's more um a compilation uh you're you're presenting this writer who is um to some extent or other um centrally significant or at least believed to be or felt to be centrally significant to science fiction and you're presenting all the information uh about their life about their career in science fiction and it's intended, I think, mostly maybe for undergraduates, graduates, and for university libraries. So um, it's quite—I wouldn't say no, not technical, but it's—it's it's not it's not fiction and it's not biography. It's uh, getting together a whole lot of facts, and then you know, as a, a reward for this, you get to write about the books and the stories as well. And read them again, which was really nice. So, when you say that she's considered such an important author, for people who aren't familiar with her, could you say why she's considered so important? Um, John Russ is uh, was the most, the best known, and in fact, um, maybe held by some to be the most important of the women in the seventies in science fiction, who were. Um, who were actually claiming to have human status, uh, who are claiming that to have uh, equality, at least equality, with most science fiction writers who were male. Uh, not all the women who were involved in science fiction at that time believed that this was necessary or, or useful. And there was quite a lot of scrapping in the, in the feminist camp and outside the feminist camp. And Joanna Russ was always in the middle of it. And she was also, um, very much more intellectually, uh, she had much more intellectual training and intellectual capacity. I mean, a capacity for 
thinking intellectually about science fiction than most writers ever bother with. So um, I think it would be fair to say that she and Samuel Delaney, between them, kind of invented academic uh, science fiction academia, science fiction scholarship back in the 60s and 70s. And um, she also wrote a terrific amount, a terrific number of short stories because people did science fiction writers. It was their bread and butter in the 60s and 70s, as as it had been in the 50s and 40s and 30s. Um, there were many, many uh, more science fiction story outlets than there are now. Um, well, I don't know if that's that may not be true anymore because there are so many digital outlets. And uh, she also wrote, she also taught science fiction and she wrote essays and she wrote some she wrote reviews for years for the magazine of fantasy and science fiction which are well they're sometimes more fun for the people reading the review than for the person that wrote the book <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah some of her most famous essay famous reviews are famous put downs um well, the uh, the one that sticks out in my mind, there was this thing about Robert Silverberg where he's like a um a sausage factory trying to become an artist. Sausage factory, like yeah, sausage factory trying to become an artist. I, I, Robert Silverberg, for those who don't know, uh, was the um, yeah, pretty much the intellectual, what intellectual, the um, humanist, uh, novelist, science fiction writer of the seventies. I should say male science fiction writer of the 70s. And he wrote books that were actually real, proper, grown-up novels only on science fiction themes. And um, after she wrote that, Joanna was very, very worried. And she wrote him a groveling apology, groveling public apology. Uh, no, it wasn't really groveling, actually. She never she never groveled. She was more like saying, um, I see, she said... I did not mean to say that Robert Silverberg was a sausage factory trying to turn himself as an, into an artist. I, Robert Silverberg is a terrific literary artist who is still working towards his full potential. Something like that. <laughs> yeah, she didn't totally back down. Um, she didn't roll over, but she definitely was very keen to apologize. Um, she was always wanting the people that she thought were good in her in her science fiction reviews, she was always wanting the people she thought were good to be better, to be more um, intellectual and more um, more challenging. Um, but at the same time, she was she was really soft in the head about um, people like Ray Bradbury. She loved his stories. She just kind of didn't want to, but she loved his kind of fairy tale stories. And there were other um, other 60s science fiction writers who certainly weren't trying to do anything particularly intellectual that she just loved because she just loved the genre. And, um, and then she'd say to the people who were really trying hard, you've got to try harder. You've got to make this more, more, more intellectual, more demanding, more exciting. And, um, yeah, so it was like, if you got a bad review from Joanna Russ, you were supposed to think she loves me. <laughs> so I don't know if people always did. <laughs> well, well, this this line really jumped out at me. She says um, in the interview, she says, I say very angry things about Ursula Le Guin quite often, but it's the anger of disappointed adoration. In some daughterly part of me, I feel she's capable of writing something like War and Peace about women, damn it. Yeah. Yeah. That was her tone with all the people that she really admired. 
I was, um, oh, I really love your book, but you've got to do something better than this. Um, I never had the privilege of being reviewed by Joanna Russ, and I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure I missed anything. <laughs> but she did understand people, and that was must have been quite thrilling to get a an in-depth review from Joanna Russ and find that somebody, and I think Ursula did get these reviews from Joanna, that was somebody who really understood what you were trying to do and who uh, could explain your novel to you, which is, um, well, it's magic if you're a writer, if you get a reviewer who can do that. You say that one of the sources that you drew on was this book by Helen Merritt called The Secret Feminist Cabal. Mm-hmm. I was just curious um, what made it secret and a cabal. Um, how did the secret feminist cabal come about? I think it was somebody, it was, um, it was, I have a feeling that it was supposed to be uh, not exactly an insult, but um, uh, a warning to other writers that there was this secret feminist cabal and of course feminists being feminists in science fiction being what they were at the time they just leapt on this and thought yeah we are we're a secret feminist cabal it was um uh it's no use i can't remember who it was that called that that thought of this idea but it wasn't feminists who said it first and helen merrick wrote the book um um which was just a report on what had happened to women in science fiction in the 70s and how, where it came from and where it was, well, where it might be going. So it wasn't actually secret. And if a cabal means everybody has to agree with everyone else and they all get together and have a secret society with rules that they all keep, nothing like that. Nothing like that happened at all. It was more like cats fighting in a bag. <laughs> well, yeah, you mentioned, yeah, the scrapping and everything. I mean, that's oh, really yeah. um, her interactions with Judith Merrill and Marion Zimmer Bradley um, stick out in my mind as being sort of contentious. Yeah. Um, Judith, Judith Merrill was probably the most important, the most significant woman in the science fiction community in the 60s and the 50s. And she was passionate about science fiction. And she had a special kind of feminism, which, uh, as I mean, which Joanna kept didn't um, appreciate at all. She had a special kind of feminism which said, "I'm a perfectly, I'm perfectly fine about doing all the housework, etc. and so forth, because I'm more competent than my husband. So I work thirteen hours and he works six, and that's because I'm better than him." Uh, so uh, that's a, a kind of uh, feminism that, that that irritated Joanna, but that's kind of beside the point with what Judith Merrill was kind of Joanna's predecessor and had in the same way as Joanna did this uh, big dream that science fiction would become would break would have it would would have its big break and become part of um the intellectual world and she was uh like Joanna as Joanna would do in the 60s and 70s she was hoping she was working in in the 50s and always hoping that the next big break would come uh that the space race would make science fiction uh central to liter the uh, the literary world or then well and then of course uh, n- nuclear bombs would make science fiction central to the literary world it, it never quite came off um and in the McCarthy days she said that it, science fiction was the 
refuge of people who wanted to speak the truth, to speak truth unto power. Uh, because, and William Gibson said, yeah, that was because science fiction was considered beneath contempt. That's why nobody bothered <laughs> science fiction writers. Um, I don't know if them's right, but I have a feeling that Gibson would edge it. Well, yeah, it was sort of heartbreaking reading the book because she, it seems like she did feel like an outsider in all these different communities that in um, English departments and among radical activists, uh, they didn't respect the science fiction that she was writing. And then um, in science fiction, because she was a woman and a feminist and all this stuff, she she always felt like she wouldn't be ever at the center of um, of the boys club, kind of. Yeah. Yeah, I think heartbreaking is not too strong. Uh, she really wanted to be a science fiction scholarship to be respectable. And she really wanted her, she first went, uh, the female man, um, most famous book spent, she spent about two years, I think, trying to get it published as a mainstream novel, as a weird mainstream novel, as an avant-garde mainstream novel, but she, she couldn't, she couldn't find anybody who would take it. So she had to come back to science fiction. Um, and I mean, it sounds like it could be an avant-garde novel with all the fourth mm, wall breaking and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, it's... it's No. <laughs> okay. I don't think so. I think it's too deeply dyed with science fiction in its um, blood and bones uh, that... To be, it would have to be written differently. The idea could be as uh, now, the, somebody now could write that story about the um, uh, braided personalities in one woman and how they're kind of superpositioned with each other, like that cat in the box, and they and, and they could make that work. But if it was written by a science fiction writer, it would still be science fiction. If that yeah, makes well, sense. And it would involve these sort of, I guess, sort of classic science fiction tropes of, um, you know, a literal war of the sexes and secret agents and parallel worlds and stuff like that. So, yeah, but the, the, those ideas are now far closer to the mainstream. Just, just a world, the battle of the sexes. And what was the other thing you said it was about? Parallel worlds. Uh, parallel worlds. Yeah, I think that could work in a, I think, I think that the, Themes of the female man could easily work, could easily work for a, an avant-garde or, um, a daring mainstream writer now and be exciting and be recognized as, uh, a really interesting way of describing a human experience. Um, like trying to get hold of the whole of a human experience is very difficult unless you say, well, there are different, different people in me and they are, and they are different, uh, relations with this event because um one of them is is like the girl i was when i was 18 and one of them is the person i am now and one of them is me when i'm in a really bad temper um i can see that working now but um uh something what's the word ineluctably i don't know i'm very poor at pronouncing long words um science fictional about it the way it is well, I mean, she was certainly writing at a different time. That's very clear reading your book. I want to read this quote. So, so she, this is, um, she writes the Alex stories, A-L-Y-X, which yeah. is one of the first or the first sort of female adventure heroes. Yeah. And she says, writing adventure stories about a woman in which the woman won 
was one of the hardest things I ever did in my life. Before writing the first story, I spent two weeks in front of my typewriter shaking. Well, first, I expect she didn't actually spend two weeks in front of her typewriter shaking. She may have been exaggerating a little. And I, I, I find that hard to relate to as well. I think, how can, how can that possibly be? But the upbringing she had and the world that she lived in was very, very different from the world that young women grow up in now, uh, that, that, that young women in, uh, America or in the, in Europe grow up in now. And she was, um, being told from when she was an undergraduate, actually, your, your degree will make you a much better housewife. And he did feel, I'm sure she did feel that she didn't have the right to win and that a girl didn't have the right to win. And she invented Alex, and I think she probably was scared, but she needn't have been because everybody loves Alex. Well, put it this way, a whole lot more people love Alex than love the female man. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, right, but it seems like she got increasing pushback throughout her career, right? Like that, her um, novel, We Who Are About To which is about um, some uh, a group of humans crashes on this alien world and they're stranded there permanently. And um, and they decide, well, we have to carry on the human race, which means forcing the women to bear children. And the main character um, you know, sort of fights back and is, doesn't, isn't willing to go along with this plan. Um, and it seems like there was a lot of um, hostility to that, that book among male critics at the time. Well, there was, there was a hostility to Joanna Russ's writing from male critics and male magazine editors and men in general in science fiction. She had some friends, but quite a lot of the men in science fiction were appalled at the, um, well, they, they certainly wrote about it as if they were appalled, um, at the way that Joanna was challenging the norms of um, what women should be in science fiction. Now, the same thing was happening in fandom when uh, um, fans, female fans, were trying to think, say, were saying, "We're not here just to be decorative and make the sandwiches. We are really interested in science fiction." It's hard to um, conceive how difficult it was for them to make that kind of statement uh, because the, the the social acceptance was just wasn't there and they would either puzzle the men were either really puzzled or really angry and felt threatened and of course with joanna's right the um anger and the feeling of being threatened was uh was much stronger but the thing about pregnancy by rape was it was kind of uh, joanna was responding rather than inventing the idea of pregnancy by rape as a theme in science fiction because it was, uh, as you mentioned, Man- Marion Zimmer Bradley. Uh, she she did written um, she'd written about a society where it was absolutely well, it was absolutely necessary for the women who had been super educated and who were officers in the um, in in the on the starship. It was necessary for them to to just give all that up and stay at home, not go out and, and bear children. And they they said no. Well, tough. Yeah, they were forced. Um, and there were other people who, other men who wrote about, um, uh, the subject, subjugation of women by making them pregnant, 
which which they weren't. I don't think they were really mainstream, but they were certainly there. It was certainly a, a pretty um, relevant theme. I mean, Joanna didn't make it up. And what actually happens in what who, we who are who are about to is that she just tries to escape. And when the people come after her, I mean, this is um, okay. Uh, you can take this any one or two ways. The um, the uh, other survivors refuse to let her go, and unfortunately for them, she's not who she seems. She's actually been an outcast, a run a, a, um, an activist who has run away from trouble long ago, and she is much much tougher than they could have imagined. And she just well, accidentally sort of kills them all. That's her story. I, if you read the book, you'll see that, that this is an unreliable narrator you have, which is um, one of the features of the book, is that you're getting it all from this one woman. Uh, you don't get anybody anybody else's point of view, only hers. So do you feel like um, doing this Joanna Russ book, has that um, influenced your writing going forward, do you think? It made me, it's made me appreciate Joanna Russ's writing. When you... Uh, have to describe in detail how a novel works uh, to an audience, which is really most of the work. Most of the work is actually compilation. You, you're putting together things that other people have said. Um, I'm, I'm extremely in debt to Farrah Mendelssohn and her book of essays and Gary Wolf and his essay on the adventures of Alex. And it's mostly quite technical, but yes, uh, actually, analyzing the novels and trying to figure out a way to describe them concisely because there's not much wiggle room in the word length of a, a master of science fiction masters of science fiction study um i think that uh i don't know what will happen i think it will affect my writing i couldn't tell you how yet do you? Um, I know the book came out fairly recently, but have you gotten a lot of feedback on it so far? Um, there've been quite a few reviews. Um, uh, we've, I've, uh, there's been a, a an article in the New Yorker recently by somebody called B. D. McClay, uh, who wrote about it. Um, there's been an and Ros Caveney. Do you know Ros Caveney? I don't think I do, no. No, anyway, she's an English science fiction person, and she wrote about it. She's pretty significant as well herself, and she wrote about it in uh, the Times Literary Supplement, and there have been lots of online reviews, and most of them are pretty um, pretty gratifying, actually, because it seems like people were really interested to read about Joanna, and the uh, what I would hope is that the people's interest in it the fact that I didn't put them off is uh, <laughs> is uh, yes uh, is is going to is going to get people reading Joanna Russ because although her books have a her novels have a, a reputation for being difficult, uh, I suppose there's no use me saying this, but they're not. I mean, the the, the female man is challenging to read, but it isn't challenging if you don't think about it. If you just read it, it's just really interesting and strange. Um, so I, I do hope that she will that she will have a, a um, that it will have an effect on her on her um, on her futurity that that people will read and and, and realize what a what a, an important person she was in science fiction. 
especially, and I, I suppose, the academic side of it, and read her essays, which are um, uh, really, really interesting and uh, fascinating to try. Well, one of the things that's fascinating is trying to figure out exactly what she meant by some <laughs> of the, yes, uh, by some of the things she was saying. But it was a, a fascinating journey, and I'm sure it will affect my writing in the future. So if, if somebody's new to her work, what would be, say, the first two things by her that they should start with? Um, they should read the story called When It Changed, which is the kind of um, short science fiction story version of the tragedy of a world where women have made a life for themselves and they get... Uh, and suddenly they are approached by, um, planet Earth, which they thought, which was something they thought was, was gone and they would never hear from, uh, Earth men again. But an Earth man turns up and very, very interested in these healthy women with their fine, clean genes. And it's like, that's genes with the G-E-N-E-S, not G-J-E-A-N-S. And, uh, that they realize their world is going to come to an end because the men are just so much bigger and stronger and richer. And it's, it's a tragic story. And I'm, I suppose that's, um, uh, sounds a bit off-putting, but it's really beautiful and it's actually really fun as well. Her short stories, I think, are, uh, a way into Joanna Russ and they are still readily available. There's a collection called the Zanzibar Cat. And another one called The Hidden Side of the Moon. And her short stories are really brilliant and easy to grasp. And another, apart from Alex, which I would certainly recommend to anybody, uh, the Alex Adventures, and they're still readily available. And uh, I, I, they are really good, really good fun and beautifully plotted and tight and clever. And yet emotional as well. And, and her last collection, which is like a, a sequence, a story sequence, um, it's called Extraordinary People. And it's, uh, um, the stories are all related to the idea of utopia, but they're all very, very different and really engrossing and not at all difficult, not at all difficult to, you know, no, um, intellectual arguments, particularly just, very much very fun to read and really exciting. Yeah, great. So then I just had a couple of miscellaneous questions for you here at the end. So one of them is uh, in your story, Emergence, one of the characters at one point says, um, there's no privacy for anyone in public office. It's the law out here. And I think a good one. And I was just curious what you think of, would you uh, advocate for no privacy for people in public office? I think in, um, uh, a situation of a completely uh, digitized environment, which is in which most of the people are actually digital entities who may or may not take physical form. They take physical form when they feel like it. It's pretty much unavoidable that nobody will have any privacy. Um, uh, I wouldn't like to live in that way myself. It's the way I think it would have to be in a completely digitized um, spaced environment of sailing around in the moons of Jupiter. I mean, it's not that I, I mean, Romy is not me. 
and her ideas are not mine. Um, but um, it's it's what I think will be a necessity that people won't have privacy, and you can you can have an imaginary privacy that people respect, which like, um, but in public office, uh, you get that imaginary that imaginary privacy maybe uh, is not enforceable. Not is 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 a privilege that you have to give up. One of the ideas that I sort of think about sometimes is if people holding public office should be required to um, keep their standard of living to sort of the median the median household income level standard of living, that holding public office couldn't be a way to live a lavish lifestyle. This would be sort of a lifelong, you know, vow yep. of middle class status. So this is. I'll, you, you're thinking of what Socrates? Or oh, it sounds it certainly sounds quite an ancient Greek idea that one. Yeah. What do you What do you think yeah. of that? Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Uh, well, in this country at the moment, um, noble, not noble poverty, but noble lack of excess seems to be out of favor and i think that goes for we had a, a there's a newspaper called, called the guardian and they are uh uh the i suppose the left-wing liberal newspaper big left-wing liberal newspaper in this country i suppose somebody's going to shoot that down but anyway that's what it seems like to me i mean i don't read newspapers except on my phone um and uh, somebody wrote an article. Uh, I don't know whether it was meant to be pro provocative or it, it was just a kind of lifestyle article in which you say, um, it's no, don't tax the rich, don't tax the billionaires. People like billionaires. I mean, I, I, I've been, I, I've felt myself coming up against this uh, when I wrote the, um, the sixth bold of the Boulder's Love book, uh, which I wrote a few years ago, and it's called The Grasshopper's Child. And the trouble is, all the people in this country now seem to, a lot of people in this country now just seem to think that the rich aren't robbers. The billionaires are not robbers. They're just like me on a good day. I could be one of them. I'm going to be one of them quite soon. So I don't want you to take away all those privileges from billionaires because I'm going to get them soon. I know I am. That's uh, uh, the pernicious attitude that I think people have to wealth at the moment. Yeah, maybe I can write a science fiction story about it since yeah. it's not happening in reality. Oh, yeah. Well, please do. Oh, you <laughs> might say um, uh, Triton, Samuel Delaney's society is, uh, well, I think it's, it's quite, it's, it's kind of on those lines. This is tr Trouble on Triton. Well, yes, uh, the book, uh, the actual um, edition I've got, which I, I, is called just Triton. Maybe it's a British edition, but it was um, Trouble on Triton originally. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't read it, but it, it comes up quite a few times in the Joanna Russ in your Joanna Russ book. So it yeah. definitely made me curious about it. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you should, you should have a look, definitely. And again, you know, it's um, it's utopian, but uh, it's a strange kind of utopia. Yeah, no, I'll definitely check that yeah. out. Yeah. Um, all right. So probably last uh, topic I'll be able to bring up here is uh, it says in your bio that your hobbies include playing Zelda. And there's this story in the book called The Seventh Gamer, which is about yep. gaming. 
So yep. I was just wondering if you could talk about how um, video gaming uh, influenced that story. Oh, um, I'm not a big gamer. I'm not really, I mean, I don't play, I'm certainly never going to go and live in a game house. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm playing Breath of the Wild at the moment. And I'm one of those people who's decided that it's absolute nonsense to um, beat Ganon and then close the file and go and have another file in Breath of the Wild. Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, I know the game. It's yeah. the most recent yeah. Zelda game. but um... Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a bit of controversy about the way that game has been made. Um, but it's, it's a brilliant game. I spend hours every week. I mean, I'm not obsessive, but I like it. It's my entertainment. And, um, and the games that I played certainly made me want to write a story about, uh, a game. And again, as in the, um, bricks, Dick straw and in emergence, what I'm, what I have happened in, what happens in the seventh gamer is that somebody gets, gets wind, I think you might say, hears, gets rumors and sees, uh, thinks that she believe that she may have found an emergent, independent AI, a conscious AI. And it's, it's the, it's the game. I mean, the, the seventh gamer is the game. And, um, uh, it's, uh, all related to, it's related to my idea about a successor, AI successors rather than, um, machines. I mean, uh, I think in one part of the story, um, Chloe says, where do you look for life in a jungle? And where do you look for new life in some pestering compost heap sort of thing? Not in a, a lab. Not in a, a, a an engineering, uh, uh, not in a, a, an engineering lab. You look for it um, just in this heaving mass, which is the game, which is just a heaving mass of human minds and uh, digital um, and a digital world, just all messed up together. And her idea is that this this place, this this place, um, darkening world, which is the name of the game, uh, has become inhabited by a real mind, uh, unsuspected, an un unsuspected real mind. It's the way the gamers talk about, um, well, uh, yeah. Well, there's this suspicion, too, that the characters have that some of the other players in the game or characters in the game might be space aliens, which uh, yes. I can see my, why you might have that thought if they're playing yeah. online games. Some of these people have got to be very rude, space aliens or something. Um. Yeah. Certainly not human. I mean, there's quite a few, there's, there's a couple of people in the game house where Chloe uh, goes to investigate who are certainly not totally human. Um, but, uh, the, the idea of, um, of having a, a game scenario that was in, inhabited by a person. So the person was the game scenario seemed to me an interesting, uh, an interesting thing to develop. And also it gave me a chance to write about the, the about playing games. Uh, so I had a lot of fun with that. The the main character in the story is exploring the sociology of game houses. Is that um, based in anything real that you uh, looked into? Yes, but not directly. Um, I've never decided to go explore game houses, but I went to. Um, I, I was I was asked to read a paper at an anthropology conference, and I went along and 
listen to these people talk and they were um and then they're, they're modern anthropologists they uh go and study at what's actually happening now rather than trying to del delving back into the past and there was one woman who was who had been uh following uh, a community somewhere oh where was it maybe colorado somewhere in the mountains and these people really had some really really strange beliefs <laughs> and she was uh i don't think it was actually really that that there were there were games there were aliens in their game but it was on on a par with that and she was observing them and how and the things that they were prepared to do like like things that were putting them in danger of death because they thought that this supernatural something or other was going to catch them in its arms and that was one of them and the other one was uh someone who'd been living in south america with some indigenous people and she ended up getting sick and she was um being treated because she was completely out of out of reach of of help from um you know the modern world she was being treated by the uh, do you call it a shaman when it's south american indigenous people anyway by the by the doctor and he was a doctor and a priest and she was getting this treatment and she was also and she was also for her, the only thing she had to read was dracula and it all came together in her mind and it was a, a, a fascinating story of how she actually experienced the um the mindset, the mind of uh, the mindset of the people who were looking after her, and they, obviously they did look after her because there she was. She was back in the university mm. telling the story, so it worked, whatever it was. But she really thought that some while it was happening, she was really in her fever, thinking that something supernatural was going on. And so that kind of thing, I took away from that conference, and I thought I could really like, I would really like to write about a, a gaming story. I would really like to write a game story. And this is the theme that I will use to write my game story. And of course, the, there is the long ago, um, my introduction to, um, uh, digital gaming was through my son, who, um, graduated from, um, Sonic the Hedgehog to Final Fantasy. And the first game I played with him as my spirit guide was Final Fantasy VII. And I thought it was just wonderful. And I know I'm not going to get the new one. <laughs> no, it just would not be the same. That that one and Okami, my best games yet. Um, yeah, yeah. If you're going to play a Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy VII is a pretty good one to play. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I, I think the nice thing about uh, writing about video games is then all your video games is just research. You know, oh, I can just count that as research. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. Go and do some more research, and <laughs> I've just got to get some more of those. <sighs> Those shafts that you can get from the sky watchers, but they're really sneaky, and I keep wasting masses of bomb arrows. <laughs> <laughs> but I, 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 I'm getting better at it. Yeah. All right. So we're pretty much out of time. Do you have any okay. just any other final thoughts or any uh, any other projects you want to mention? Um. Um. I. No, not really. I mean, I've been talking for quite a while and my ears are ringing, so maybe I'll just call it a day there. 
Yeah, well, I am hoping to see the boulders. Oh, yeah, I should mention, I'm hoping to see the boulders love books back in, um, back in circulation. They've been uh, out of print for a while. The first two boulders loves books are going to appear as Gallant's masterworks this year. And I'm hoping that will be followed by the others. So yeah. That, yeah. The, the SF Masterworks series. I, I love that series. I, 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 yeah, I love those books. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, an, an offer I couldn't refuse. Yes. Yeah. I was very pleased to get that. All right. Great. So, yeah, so we've been speaking with Gwyneth Jones about her new books, Joanna Russ and Big Cat and other stories. So, Gwyneth, thank you so much for joining us. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for talking to me. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Gwyneth Jones for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoyed the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.